Welcome to the Modern Lawyer Podcast. My name is Anna Nupadier, and thanks for joining us. This is a podcast about rapid change in the legal industry. We'll focus on legal technology, knowledge management, law libraries, automation, and the business of law. Today's guest is Jordan Grotzinger, a shareholder and co-chair of the Los Angeles litigation practice at Greenberg Trorig. Jordan is a business litigator and trial attorney who has experience in entertainment law and intellectual property. Lately, he spent an increasing amount of time driving innovation and modernization at the firm. We were honored to host Jordan in our office at Case Text in San Francisco to talk about how attorneys can incorporate technology into their practice at large firms, what trends he's seeing in litigation, and what an innovation narrative means at a large firm. Jordan, thanks for joining us on the Modern Lawyer Podcast. So happy to be here. So, Jordan, uh, a lot of what we're going to talk about today is innovation and technology. But before I want to get into that, I want to hear a bit about your background and biography. Sure. So I've been with Greenberg Troig for 17 years, which I think is uh, pretty unique in the big law business. It, it really happened by accident. I was a relative baby lawyer around a third year. And I ran into somebody I knew from law school who was working at Greenberg. I was looking to make a move. I, I literally, I was walking in, she was walking out. So, but for those few seconds, I would not be sitting here today. Long story short, Greenberg had just opened in LA. I met the folks. We hit it off a few months later. I started working there. And, uh, you know, a, a generation later, um, here I am. It's, it's a little crazy. From a, a baby lawyer, you have... Uh, risen to a shareholder at Greenberg Oregon, not just a shareholder, but you are also the co-chair of the LA litigation practice. Yes. Excellent. So I want to get right into it uh, because I think as a, a big firm partner, as a big firm litigator, you have a very unique perspective on this. And uh, one of the things that we talked about offline is um, something that, that you referred to as an innovation narrative. And I want to get into that. Um, First of all, what is an innovation narrative? And you know, secondly, why do firms like Greenberg Troig need an innovation narrative? Well, I think when you talk about an innovation narrative, I, I think you're talking about um, a, a desire across the firm to innovate. And, and the reason it's necessary is very simply because we're a business and every business needs to innovate. Uh, you talk about the car business, the computer business. Can you imagine if you know, uh, a big car company decided, here's our model, that's it. Or, 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 or Dell decided, here's our laptop, and this is what it's going to be for the next five years. Nobody would buy their products. And I don't think there's a reason the law business should be exempt from that, um, particularly with clients that are very focused on innovation. And, and to me, innovation just means uh, providing more value. It, it doesn't have to be techy, although it is, and I know we're going to get into that. There's a million different ways to innovate, and, and that's just evolution to me. And as a business, it's required. Um, and really, I think our commitment to innovate is nothing more than an acknowledgement that business isn't perfect, um, which seems obvious, but that's really all it is. So if it's not perfect, you want to get better. Uh, it reminds me of that quote from one of my favorite books by Ray Dalio, who's the most 
successful uh, hedge fund investor ever. My favorite quote from his book, Principles, is perfection doesn't exist. It's a goal that fuels a never-ending process of adaptation. And the law business is not exempt from that. Do you think uh, that a, a lot of the move towards innovation is uh, driven by the client? Absolutely. Um, I know that clients are no longer satisfied with billable model as the, the bread and butter. Too many clients, and I heard this on one of your prior uh, episodes, look at are wary of firms that look at ours as units that need to be sold off the shelves because that is not how firms are immersed and aligned with clients' businesses. And, and that's what they want. They're looking for partnerships. Selling ours can be valuable, and I don't think it's going to go away, but it's not enough anymore. So absolutely, um, clients are demanding it. You know, I think that that quote was from um, our episode with Jason Barnwell, and that was hours of wakeful human attention or something like that. That's the one. Well, let's get right into um, the billable hour. Obviously, uh, people have been talking about changes to the billable hour for decades. You know, there have been a lot of people speculating that the billable hour will uh, end in 1985, 1995, 2005, 2015. Yet the billable hour is still the dominant um, form of billing across the profession. But we're starting to see signs that this is changing. What What is your take on that? Is that a good thing? Uh, or is that a scary thing from the perspective of a big firm partner? It's both. It's both. Um, scary things can be good things because they motivate you. And um, as I was saying, relative to what clients want, they're not going to just accept, here's our business model, we charge this by the hour, and that's the end of it. So you mentioned um, you know, law firm billing, and uh, hourly billing is obviously still the dominant form of billing across the profession, but people have been predicting its demise for decades, right? Since uh, the 70s, since the 80s, uh, at the very latest, people have been predicting that the billable hour isn't going to make it out of this decade, this century, whatever it may be. Yet here we are. And the billable hour is still the dominant way that attorneys bill for uh, their their legal work. You know, what what is shifting there? And um, is that something that keeps you up at night? Well, what's shifting is uh, our thinking on what the best way to deliver legal services is. And as I was saying before, clients are accepting less and less, you know, here's your model, we charge this by the hour, and that's the end of it. You've gotta be more creative now. And I think, so the thinking about the model is changing and it opens up a lot of opportunities to think outside the box and not just AFAs or flat fees, which can be valuable, but um, developing potential products, so to speak, where teams of lawyers come in to review uh, policies or agreements of a client um, for particular purposes, and also coupled perhaps with a smart software that addresses the particular issues that we're trying to protect against. So I think and, you know, that might be for a flat fee and it might be, it almost always would be less than it would cost if you just had a team of lawyers billing by the hour. But 
um, what what the firm gets, uh, even though they might make less money up front, is in that situation, immersion into the client's business and alignment with the client's business, that partnership that I was talking about. And why is that valuable for us? Because I, I think that it will lead to more and better work. If clients know, if, if clients perceive us as immersed in the business and aligned with the business and not just selling units of hours, um, I firmly believe we'll get more and more meaningful work. And, and that's obviously a goal of ours. So Jordan, on the record here on this podcast, what is your prediction uh, of the billable hour? I mean, um, maybe, am I too optimistic in predicting that in 10 years or so, uh, billable the billable hour will represent less than half of uh, total billing for legal services in the U.S. economy? That's a great question. I don't know if I'd say um, too optimistic. I think it's a little aggressive because we're dealing with large groups of humans who have been reinforced uh, by this model for 100 years. So uh, even though we've been talking about, you know, is it going to end at 75, 85, 95, 10 more years reduced by 50 percent? Maybe. I don't know. Uh, that's a bold prediction. I, I don't see the billable hour going away, um, but what I do see is it giving way to more creative packaging of delivery coupled with smart technology to give more value to clients. And again, to better enable us to immerse ourselves and align ourselves with their businesses so that we get more meaningful work. So there's three things in that in that answer and one of your prior answers that I want to kind of pull out, right? One, the ability for alternative fee arrangements to allow you to immerse yourself in your client's business model and your client's issues or legal problems. Uh, the second is the role of a chief pricing officer, which is incredibly interesting uh, to me. The third is the use of technology, right? Kind of paired up with alternative fee arrangements. And I want to kind of tackle those. I want to start with the chief pricing officer then, uh, because I think one of the really interesting things in the legal industry and legal tech is the emergence of all of these new roles over the last 10, 15 years. You know, 20 years ago, the idea that there would be a chief knowledge officer or a, uh, a, a CTO, a chief technology officer, chief data officer at a firm was, was unthinkable. Uh, you know that that you know a lot of these titles seem more fitting to a technology company than a law firm, but here we are. Now, one of those titles that is very interesting to me is chief pricing officer. What is the role of the chief pricing officer, and what are your predictions on kind of the future of uh, chief pricing officers and uh, the pricing departments of law firms as we move to more creative ways of billing the client? So. We've had a chief pricing officer since 2014. Um, his name's Matt Beekhausen, and I, I believe he was the first in, in the big law business to be named a chief price, pricing officer of a firm like ours. Uh, in terms of his role, it, it's he, he kind of has a bi-level role. Um, internal to the firm, uh, he's basically a consultant to our attorneys to help develop pricing, to help develop AFAs and also to monitor and manage the work so that it is consistent with the, the, the fee structures that we develop. Um, because obviously a lot of predictions go into AFAs and flat fees and 
we want to make sure it works for the client and for us. So he helps develop and he helps monitor to make sure it's implemented correctly. Um, the other role is more client facing. He can be involved in negotiating fee agreements and also working with the client directly to make sure that um, whatever fee structure we've agreed to is being implemented the way we talked about and that the client is getting sufficient reporting on uh, the fees and the bills and, and all that other stuff that's important to them. Let me zoom out to chief pricing officers at other firms as well. From your perspective as a shareholder of Greenberg Trorig, is it the job of the, the CPO to kind of assess risk and um, look at probabilities, uh, look at the total number of people who may be staffed on it, uh, kind of uh, in a way more like a consultancy like McKinsey or Bain? That's exactly what it is. Um, and he also monitors a staff of analysts and implements technologies to ensure that we are being efficient. So that, as you alluded to, goes from staffing, you know, are, it, it, for this particular structure that we've agreed to with the client, are we too top heavy? Are we too bottom heavy? Um, how do we need to adjust this for this to make sense for the client? Um, and he also implements technology that helps us track our efficiencies to make them better. There was a, an earlier episode that we had with Jeff Rovner, who's from O'Melveny and Myers, and um, he was talking about how the future of law firm practice, especially the biggest law firms like Greenberg Trorick, will look a lot more like an operations-based consulting model than a typical uh, kind of siloed off law firm. Do you think that the rise of a chief pricing officer and a pricing department uh, is kind of um, that prediction coming true, that law firms are going to be um, a lot more operationally minded and a lot more efficiency minded going forward? In part, yes. And that's the whole point of the chief pricing officer. Uh, you know, it, I look at the chief pricing officer as a major step toward our innovation. Uh, as I think I said before, it's not all tech. There's a lot of human elements, too. And and um, creative pricing is one of them. So in part, absolutely, uh, it's moving in that direction. And I hope um, that that helps us move away from sort of the classic siloed model that you referred to. I want to get to the second thing that you referred to in, in your prior uh, answer, and that is that alternative fee arrangements offer an opportunity for firms like Greenberg to immerse themselves in their client's business model. I want to dig into what you mean by that. You know, what is it about an, an AFA that allows and provides Greenberg an opportunity to really understand what the client is uh, focused on and how the client makes money and how the client does business that a simple hourly uh, billing rate assigned to an account or a case does not provide. Right. So back to that example of providing a product, quote unquote, where we would come in and review certain agreements or policies or technology for a particular purpose. In that product, we would do so for, say, a flat fee. And as I said, that would be almost always less than it would cost hourly. Um, 
we're not constrained by our hours at that point. We know what we're going to charge, but it is our job to come in and immerse ourselves in those agreements and figure out where the holes are and how they can be, be made better and make them better. Um, with this particular product, as I said, it would be through a combination of attorney review and hopefully smart technology. But getting that close to the client and coming in and talking to the right people there. And, and again, this product would be a preemptive review. It, this is not a litigation product. This is a pre-litigation product. That would really help us understand the client, get to know the people, um, talk to them about their larger goals. And that's the kind of immersion I'm talking about. So even though um, we would be capped at a flat fee for that service or product or whatever you want to call it, we would be in the client working with them very close to um, their agreements and policies and whatever we're hired to make better. Um, and, and, and I think that really helps to align us with the client's business and set us up as sort of the go-to folks for future issues on what we're working on. Do you foresee a future where a firm like Greenberg Torag will have a in-house or internal team of technologists that can uh, create the kind of technology that would make uh, doing, you know, XYZ project for, uh, you know, big company A profitable at a certain contract amount. I could see that, you know, we, as you know, because you work with them, we've got KM folks here already, but in terms of developing software and technologies, um, we talked to outside partners. Could I see that happening in the future? Sure. I hope it does. You referred to a piece of technology in your prior answer that, um, is attempting to make uh, the pre-litigation process more efficient by uh, kind of carving out some work that is currently done maybe inefficiently by human beings or too slowly by human beings. And um, the, the idea is to take that and allocate that work to technology for it to do better, right? Uh, can you describe generally and in broad strokes what that uh, tech idea is? Yes. So, and and I wish I could describe it more specifically, but we're, we're still designing the product and I don't want to talk about it publicly. But this is the product I was talking about before, where for some sort of flat fee, we would come into the client, review certain agreements or their technology or policies for a particular purpose and fortify them as needed. And, and that would just cut a chunk of time off the project uh, and make us more efficient. Um, and I actually view this concept as an example of where our business model can go, which is, you know, it, it seems like every day folks like you are coming up with AI products and algorithms and there's alternative service providers and there's so many things that are eating into the things that law firms used to do. Um, and, and I've heard people talk about, you know, or it, I think there's an article on it last week on LinkedIn somewhere, is AI just gonna replace lawyers? And I don't see that happening. What I do see happening, I think it's pretty exciting, is I see us leading to a model where you need human lawyers, um, but working with better, smarter technology to be more efficient and to be better and faster. Um, and that's ultimately where I see the business going. And I think this product is 
you know, might be a, a concrete example of that. One of the things I know you mentioned is that uh, you think that technology makes each individual attorney more valuable. And I'm fascinated by that kind of framing of it, right? Because that, as you just said, steps away from this competition, right? Between, um, you know, technology and attorneys, you know, who's going to take whose job or whatever, whatever the framing may be to the, um, to the perspective that technology, much like a, uh, a fork or a spoon, is a tool yes. that makes human beings uh, more valuable. What did you mean by uh, you know, that statement that technology makes each individual attorney more valuable? So I think it's a pretty simple, uh, simple idea. I, I mean, legal technology gives us better, faster information to enable us to make better decisions. Um, it helps in our decision making, which is really what we're selling. Um, and better decision making, of course, is valuable across all phases of a matter from pitching to a client to advising a client to uh, strategy and taking action on behalf of the client. And it's also a perfect example of what we just talked about, which is humans and technology um, working together to make better decisions. Perhaps um, short term, um, you might think that, well, uh, technology is taking away our hours and, you know, it used to be that you could go to a library for hours and bill for it and then Lexus and maybe bill a little less. And now you, you plug uh, a brief into Kara and you get the best 15 cases in, in 10 seconds. How is that? How does that make us more valuable? Well, it makes us more valuable to the clients because we're getting better, faster information to make better decisions. And ultimately, that's better for the client. And the more it's better for the client, the more work I think we'll get. Um, and, and these alternative models will, I think, eventually work themselves out so that they make business sense for both sides. Um, you know, the hourly rate we might not get the same amount of money for a matter that we would as an hourly rate, but if we're this much more efficient and this much more valuable to a client, uh, we will get more and better work, which is the goal of being more valuable, being innovative. One of the things you mentioned is, um, <clears throat> is RFPs and pitches. Uh, to what extent do you think that um, Greenberg Troig's innovation narrative, the innovation that it uses, its technology, play into pitching clients, getting new business? Um, so there are a lot of tools now that can help us with pitches. Um, you know, I know you're aware of a new tool called Gavalytics, which is a, a judicial data company, which was actually started by uh, an attorney, Rick Merrill, who used to work with me. Um, we are now uh, a, a user of Gavalytics, and that's a company that can immediately identify hard data uh, to give to a client or prospect that you couldn't use, couldn't uh, uh, give before. So in a pitch, for example, um, you could say, all right, we see this complaint. Here's this judge. Um, this judge has been uh, peremptory challenged 60% of the time, or this judge uh, denies summary judgment 70% of the time. Um, and, and hard statistics like that, that were previously unavailable, th those kinds of technologies are very valuable in pitches. And there are others too, like, um, uh, 
Manzama, which is an aggregator about client businesses and just gives us better information so we know more about the client when we're pitching. To what extent do you think that the modern, you know, big firm client um, almost at this point in a pitch and in a response to an RFP really just expects to be in some ways dazzled by the technology that a firm, especially an, an elite firm like Grimner Torreg is using. Is that just kind of table stakes at this point? I think so. I, you know, of course it depends on the client, but I think you have to, you have to think that way for every pitch um, because I would say the most forward thinking businesses think that way and they want us to think like us. So yes. I want to transition now to another subject, and that is um, the future of competition, especially as it relates to firms like Greenberg Ferrari. Uh, a lot of people in the legal industry, a lot of, I should say, experts in the legal industry are talking about all of the competitive cross pressures that, um, that large firms are facing. Uh, among those are the rise of headcount in-house at uh, corporations the rise of small firms, especially boutiques, that can uh, that at least claim to do the caliber of work of the Amlaw 50, but at a lower price point. And, and third, you have the rise of big four accounting firms really uh, adding uh, you know, thousands of lawyers to their ranks over the last 10 years or so. Um, to what extent did each of these um, types of competition, um, you know, give you a pause or keep you up at night as a shareholder at Greenberg Troy? So you hear more and more about it, and it certainly keeps you on your toes, and it's a motivator. But as as one of our um, hip hop clients once said, in a way, uh, ain't nothing changed but the date. Um, to get clients, you've got to, you've got to give. And again, I keep coming back to this, but innovation to me is all about giving. How can we give more? Um, and so, yeah, we, we've got the big four doing, I guess, more deal side work and thinking pretty creatively. Um, and it forces us to do that. And to your point about the, the boutique firms who, who, um, say they can deliver the same service as Amlaw 100, but at a lower price point. That kind of thing, all our competition motivates us to be elite. And, and one of the things that we are doing uh, at our firm is we are, we're working in teams to push each other and spend non-billable time to become truly elite in our areas. And, you know, I say this to everybody way too much, but, and I, I might've even said it before in, in this episode, I can't even remember I say it so, so much, but, you know, I sit in a building in LA in a square mile with a hundred, a thousand other people uh, that do exactly what I do at comparable firms. You don't need to go to business school to know that that's a, that's not, that's not a great business proposition. You know, how do you market against that? And I think the answer is, um, in addition to the technology and the creative packaging of services, you simply have to become elite. And I'm not talking about specialization. I am talking about um, constant mastery of your subject using your own time. And so what many of us are doing is 
pushing each other to do just that. If, if you're in a certain practice area, um, and I guess to some extent you need some quote unquote specialty to focus on because it's hard to sell yourself, say, as I'm an awesome trial lawyer and hire me because I'm better than the, the other 50 people in this building. Um, but with respect to your area of law, we push each other to um, read cases all the time, look for opportunities to write. Uh, so as part of this initiative, um, we're always looking for opportunities to find ways to work together, to spend our own time to master our subject, whether it's committing to read five cases a day, um, whether it's going to CLE seminars or finding opportunities to present CLEs to clients or prospects on our area. But ultimately, the goal is to reach the point where um, you basically can answer questions off the top of your head. Um, and I don't think any lawyer is going to get to the point, depending on the complexity of the area of law, where you can literally do that for every question. But if you can answer... 80% of the questions off the top of your head without cracking a, a computer or a book, um, that's pretty valuable. And I know just from being in the law business so long that many lawyers, they come to work and they grind and they're billing their hours and they're doing their jobs, but not everybody spends their own time on mastery. And I think that if you reach the point where you have learned as much as you can learn to the point that you can go to a client and really feel like you can help them because you are elite at what you do. That's real value. And so circling back to your initial question, all these different kinds of competition, while there is more news about them, it's not really new, um, but it but it's a it's a continuous motivator to always try to separate yourself whether it's through technology or the human side of just becoming a master of what you're doing. How does a firm like Greenberg Troy with its, um, you know, large firm billable rates compete with, let's say a, um, a offshoot of Greenberg Troy that starts a 10 attorney boutique litigation firm in a um, relatively inexpensive city. You know, what is, what is Greenberg Troy's value prop? to uh, a client versus that boutique? So uh, one of our big value propositions is that we are um, spread across offices in different economies. And we, we frequently collaborate with other offices who are, uh, with attorneys in other offices who are perhaps expert in their areas, but charge, uh, say, a central Florida rate for a matter that might be pending in New York or Los Angeles or San Francisco. And so um, we, we really make an effort to collaborate across offices to get that value from our experts in jurisdictions that charge less. That's probably the most direct answer to your question of how we could compete with that. And the other way is, depending on the case and the client uh, for which the smaller hypothetical firm is getting hired, you know, what kind of platform do they need? If, if, uh, if they've got a massive case with depositions all over the country and uh, you, sometimes you just need a bigger platform, but, but that's really case and client specific. But in terms of the value proposition, um, you know, I, I, I work cases regularly that are in big money jurisdictions, but I know so-and-so from Tampa who I've worked with for years 
and is just awesome as, at what they do and charges half the rate and we'll pro hoc in and, and, and team up that way. And that provides real value for the client. How do you think your law practice will change in the next 10 years? If you're looking at Jordan Grotzinger in 10 years, practicing law at Greenberg Troy, what are you doing differently? I, I would love to know the answer to that question. Um, <laughs> if I have any clue, hopefully some of the stuff I've been talking about today will come true, which is um, we will continue to come up with uh, products. I call them products, but you know, really we're a seller of services, but I just call them products because it helps me envision our service as being delivered in a different way than the old bread and butter of the billable hour. So I do see it um, transitioning to a model where, yes, we're sometimes billing hours, but, but more and more frequently, um, we are providing uh, services to our clients that, um, that they need, that they might not have thought they needed until we proposed it. Um, but because we proposed it and because the pricing makes so much sense and perhaps is a relatively small investment relative to what we're saying we're going to protect for you, um, I, I think we, we transition to those kinds of delivery models where uh, you know, we, we're coming into a client's business and working with them and using technology to help fortify whatever it is we're working on for them. But I think I see the business transitioning to more and more of that. And I, I, I do think there will always be, well, I don't know about always, but for the foreseeable future, um, they'll still be the billable hour uh, because sometimes, you know, there's just not a better model. But if you're going to charge by the hour, I think it's another motivator, especially in this climate, especially with me sitting in a building with a, you know, in a square mile of a thousand people who do what I do that I better be elite. I better, I better be confident myself that I can help this client better than anybody else. And I, I, I do not mean to say that that's going to be me and I'm the best, but it's, it's a mindset. And it's that constant adaptation and mastery that you have to have if you're going to sell by the hour. Jordan, I've got one last question for you. Uh, this is a question that I usually wrap up on because it's, it's uh, you know, yields a lot of uplifting answers. And that, that question is, what are some of the most encouraging trends that you're seeing in the legal industry from your perspective as a, uh, a, a large elite firm shareholder? So uh, we've always had this culture. It really, it's been pounded into us from, I, I've been here for over 17 years and, and heard it from day one. We have this culture of looking at disruptions as opportunities and I mean, the reason we're recording this podcast is because the legal business is in a, a state of disruption. And this is no different. Um, and, and the exciting thing for us is that because of this disruption, clients are, are truly hungry for creative attorneys to propose better delivery for true immersion and alignment as opposed to just moving those units, those hours off the shelves. And, and that's what's going to lead to, to more and more meaningful work. And, um, you know, we talk generally about my one little idea. 
But that little idea, uh, I was on a run a, a few weeks ago and, and it popped into my head and now it's being implemented and we're talking to you about a piece of it and things are happening. And so um, disruption is always an opportunity. It certainly is for us. And we're excited to uh, keep thinking of these different ways to give more, which is what it's all about. Jordan, it's been an honor and a pleasure to have you in our offices to host you here in person. We really appreciate you coming up from LA to join us in our offices here in San Francisco. And uh, a big thank you from uh, all of us at Case Tech for joining us on the Modern Lawyer Podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Modern Lawyer Podcast. We always love hearing from you and we highly value your feedback. Reach out to me at onin at casetext.com, tweet at us with the hashtag Modern Lawyer, and check us out at modernlawyerpodcast.com. We hope you join us for our next episode. Special thanks to the Case Text team, especially our producer extraordinaire, Abby Hadidian. See you soon.